Hey, good day, everybody. It's Joe here at Frequency. It, uh, it's near the end of summer, I guess. Well, it's at least uh, the, the end of August, and I know kids in my neck of the woods are getting ready to go back to school next week. But it's uh, it's time for another Amped interview. But before I jump into the, uh, the interview itself, I want to just do a quick bit of housekeeping because uh, we haven't made uh, many announcements around this topic, but here in uh, the next couple of weeks, it's really only days away, we're going to be releasing our first uh, Frequency Seasonal Sampler. Now, I, that's not necessarily the official title. We're still working on that. You know, some of those details that come at the, the tail end. But what the, uh, the Seasonal Sampler is going to be is a collection of music from some of our favorite artists. And some of those are folks that we've interviewed, folks we'd like to interview, and folks that are already scheduled. Uh, we've already actually recorded an interview, and we're just waiting to release it in the next uh, few weeks. And uh, it includes folks that are well-known to the Frequency audience, such as uh, Ross King and Krista Wells doing some of my favorite songs that they've ever done, including Ross's song, Love is a Hammer, which was, for me, hands down the best song of 2015. And folks like the Union of Sinners and Saints, which has John Schlitt from Petra and Billy Smiley from Whiteheart, who we interviewed earlier this year. Um, Zealand Worship's got a track on there. And a whole host of independent artists that we've culled from different musical genres. So you'll you'll find some rap, and you'll find some rock, and you'll find some folk. We've got the Brothers McClurg on there, Weston Skaggs, whose uh, album Joy and Sorrow we just reviewed, an excellent album. So we've brought together a lot of great music, and we'll be sharing that with you on Noise Trade in just a couple of weeks. So we're really excited about it. Can't wait to share it. And the best part, of course, is it's going to be absolutely free. So be on the lookout for it. We'll be sharing some more news here in the not-too-distant future. Now, uh, on to our interview subject. Today in the Amped interview, we're chatting with author D.L. Mayfield, and uh, she's a, a writer who happens to make Portland, Oregon her home. And I, I actually met her via Twitter just shortly after she'd moved back to the Portland area after being in the uh, Minneapolis uh, metropolitan area. And she and her husband, Crispin, invited me over for a cup of coffee, and we sat around and we chatted for a couple of hours just about everything, life, his job, her writing, her book, uh, had, had a lot of fun. We didn't actually record an interview. It was just time to connect, and I really enjoyed it. And then uh, just a, a few weeks ago, actually, on my birthday, July 29th, write that down, folks, by the way, um, we connected over Skype. Uh, and uh, conducted this interview. We had a lot of fun. I actually had to cut out a lot of the sections where we were both laughing because we just said some inane things. But this is one of my favorite interviews this year, and we've done quite a few of them. Had a lot of fun chatting with Danielle and, and really loved her book, as you'll hear from the interview. But I want to send a special shout-out to her husband, Crispin, for recording their side. That's why the recording quality is so good. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview. I had a great time. We'll catch you uh, the next episode. Take care. Frequency.fm presents The Amped Interview. On this fine and very hot day in July, we're pleased to introduce you to our interview guest today, author D.L. Mayfield, or as I like to refer to her, Danielle. So welcome, Danielle. Glad to have you on the interview. Thank you so much, Joe. Now we're going to be discussing your book today, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. Now, but before we do, I think I really need to address the irony of the fact that uh, we both live in the Portland metropolitan area here in Oregon, and yet we are connecting over Skype 
rather than connecting in person. Yeah, that's just how it goes, though. I mean, you know. <laughs> I know. It just seems like that's the way it is, right? That's the, the irony of the situation. Anyway, I want to introduce people to the book, and I wondered if you could just take a couple of minutes and give us a quick overview of what this book is about. And it's something to me that I think is incredibly timely and worthwhile for people to dig into. Yeah, so the book is um, about my journey from, I grew up wanting to be a missionary, and I started working with Somali Bantu refugees here in Portland, Oregon, over a decade ago, while I was going to Bible college to become a missionary. Um, And I started to practice my missionary ways on them. And instead of converting them to, you know, my version of westernized American Christianity, I ended up discovering a whole different America through their eyes and through their experiences. And I became sort of immersed and enmeshed in, um, at least from an outsider perspective, of what the refugee experience in America was. And it and it completely changed my life. So the book is about that. And the title, I know it is very strong, Assimilate or Go Home, but it kind of speaks to these ideas we have um, about what it means to conform to the narrative of the American dream and also speaks a little bit to how I felt as a really conservative Christian, um, how I didn't really feel like I fit in to American popular culture either. Um, So it kind of speaks to those themes, but obviously it is provocative. And, you know, I wouldn't mind at all if Donald Trump picked up the book and flipped through it and maybe read all the way to the end. I think it might be good for him. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, we're not We're not going to go there. I mean, I'm not a political person, and that's. I want to stay far <laughs> away from that stuff. Anyway, I was thinking it would be a fun way to introduce people to the book by maybe sharing with them a few of the stories that are in the book. There were two or three, maybe four, that jumped out at me that I thought would um, – that are great illustrations and great representations of of what your book is about. And the first one that I had on my list, if you're okay with that, is the um, the harvest party or Halloween party, or, you know, whatever folks want to call it, but where you took some of the, the young women and you wanted to introduce them to our tradition around this holiday and have fun with them at the same time and really hmm. maybe even introduce them to the folks at your church at the same time. And I wondered if you would just take a few moments Mm. and maybe relay that story, if I haven't ruined it for folks, uh, and share it with folks and what you got out of that that experience. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the story about taking the girls to the harvest party. Like, you know, just at first glance, it's sort of a story about me taking these beautiful girls. So they were Somali Bantu, so um, they are... Muslim, and they dressed up as Bollywood princesses for this party, and they were so excited. And I think they were, you know, somewhere around 10, 11, or 12 when I took them. And when we showed up to the harvest party at my church, it was just a bunch of mostly younger kids all in these, you know, store-bought costumes. And everybody just sort of stopped and stared at us. And I was not expecting that, except maybe I was hoping people would you know, kind of notice me being this awesome volunteer, bringing these Muslim girls to this Christian outreach event. Um, But instead, a lot of attention was placed on the girls and not in a very positive light. And 
I could just sense the exact moment they stopped feeling like beautiful princesses and instead felt like awkward outsiders that didn't belong. And it just sort of flipped the switch in me. And I just thought, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to subject them to one more place where they don't feel like they fit in anywhere. And so we ended up leaving the harvest party and I went and we just bought them bags of candy at a grocery store. And they kind of explained to me that that's how they feel in so many situations in America, that they don't belong. And I just felt horrified that I had, because I had these good intentions, I had subjected them to yet another experience of feeling like such an outsider. But I do want to make it clear, you know, I'm not blaming the church I was going to or any of that. Um, I kind of wanted the point of that story to rest on me and how sometimes even our good impulses can lead us to put our friends and neighbors and people we're wanting to minister to from another culture can put them in these situations where they have to risk so much and they can experience so much rejection. That's one of those, one of the reasons I love that story is it makes me consider everybody's perspective uh, because I love the fact that you speak to the fact that you as an individual can see your own selfish, maybe desires in there. I know it's desires is a strong word, but that you felt um, that you you wanted a certain recognition for being the person that uh, is open enough and uh, to invite these young women and here you are doing your job as a missionary and, and wanting some of that attention mm-hmm. um, but then recognizing that these young ladies are this is a foreign culture and by foreign I, I mean I'm not I'm using that as like as different this is very different than their experience and they trust you and they show up and and it's completely different than they expected. And then you have these people in the congregation who are probably really good people, but don't, but it's foreign to them. How do I respond to these young women? But it just seems that there's so much that, so many assumptions that we make about how we're going to respond and how everybody else is going to respond that it takes you, it takes somebody to be truly empathetic to, um, to, to, to be able to pull those things together and make everybody feel welcome. Yeah, yeah, and it, and I also kind of wanted to point out, maybe I was critiquing the church a little bit, just in that so often maybe what even starts out as a way to you know widen our circle and open the doors can so quickly become something that is only comfortable for a few, and that can happen so easily without us even knowing it if we don't have a very diverse circle, and that can just happen so easily. Yeah. I tend to like to, I live in West Lynn, which might be the least diverse town in the world. And, you know. That's all of Oregon, really. Well, yeah, it's true. But I think West Lynn really, really encapsulates that. And I'm certainly not here for that reason. Uh, But I'm I'm aware that I've got a son who's growing up in a a community that, that lacks diversity. And how do I... How do I expose him mm. and, and knowing that I need to expose him to cultures outside of this? Because when I engage with people in my local community, uh, I can be struck with, in a, a strong term, the ignorance that I, that I meet. And it's not stupidity. It's just the lack of knowledge. Yeah. And uh, But that also, as I was saying earlier, is me as well. I think that I'm worldly and yet... Where have I been, you know, and, and I I've certainly haven't engaged the level you have with the Somali Bantu. I would have no idea. And so there's that conviction that comes with, wow, I think I know what I'm talking about, but I don't. 
Um, and your book does a great job of helping remind us that uh, of how little we know. And your humility in the book is wonderful because it gives us permission to go, yeah, I really don't know either. So I really appreciate your humility. I want to affirm you for that uh, in your writing in the book. Mm, thank you. You have no response to that, I understand. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> like, I still struggle, so. <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, the, the next thing I wanted, the next story that I, I thought I, I might bring up, because it really touched me in a way I didn't expect, was you discussing your friendship with Indu. Um, and it, is she also Somali Bantu? I can't no, remember. No, she's actually um, a refugee from Bhutan. So, there we yeah, go. a Bhutanese okay. refugee. And, and you just had this friendship where she would cook for you. Mm-hmm. You shared how you you tried to cook for her, and her response to that was, let's say, lacking in enthusiasm. <laughs> and she just I wouldn't found, eat it, is what happened. Um, and it would be difficult not to be offended, but then when you think about the fact that she, there's so little that she controls, uh, so little that she has left from her heritage, from from where she's from, that this cooking is sacred to her, and yours not so much right yeah indu she was my neighbor she lived down the hall from me Um, we lived in inner southeast portland in low-income housing where um, a lot of refugees lived and she was just she was the neighbor who i think taught me the most about the the importance and mutuality in relationships so i was trained to come into these cross-cultural relationships where you know, I'm the person who has something to offer. You know, I can come and tell you about the Lord, tell you about the Bible. I can teach you English. Um, and a lot of it was coming from this these very traditional hierarchical roles. And Indu was the person who taught me <laughs> what it means to um, not have something to offer and how that can actually make a relationship more real and more deep and so with Indu yeah she would cook me these amazing meals and she loved to feed my daughter as well and the food was just so delicious and anytime I cooked for her she just wasn't having any of it and I started to get this panicky sense because every week after English class she would cook me this huge meal and I just felt like I was going to be forever in her debt um, until finally one day I realized I'm never going to be able to pay her back and her blessing me was a blessing to both of us. It gave her a sense of being able to give something and to bless me. And she could see how much I love the food. She saw how much my daughter loved it. And so the story I wrote was actually about when we were moving out of those apartments and she decided to teach me how to cook um, pakora, these deep fried vegetables that I love so much. And that was her final gift to me was to teach me how to do it so I could keep that blessing going forward. Um, and it was it was such a gift to me. Now, can you actually cook them? No. <laughs> no, I cannot. However, sometimes when I despair, I do think to myself, someone like Indu, again, like you mentioned, her cooking these traditional foods is so important because that is such a part of her culture. So sometimes when I feel bad about my cooking, I just tell myself, well, Indu like cooks the same 10 things and she's cooked those 10 things like a million times each. That's why they're so good. And I cook more than 10 things, which is why they don't taste as good, probably. That's just what I tell myself. <laughs> yeah, whatever you got to tell yourself, right. Danielle, right. whatever. <laughs> Although um, you guys invited me over to your house a few weeks ago and made me coffee, and, and I can't remember what we ate. But um, uh, obviously, your husband does a great job with the coffee. Oh, he's really so. good at that, yes. <laughs> 
Uh, well, the other story, uh, and I don't want to make this all about stories, but the book is full of them, and they're such wonderful illustrations. I just want to give people a taste of them. The topic is trauma, and the story was the coloring um, that you were facilitating with the kids, and one of the pictures that was drawn was um, uh, it was a picture of a lion with something in its mouth, and um, I think you approached the boy to ask what was in the lion's mouth, and it turned out that it was a boy. Um, am I getting this right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because I read it. You'd think I would understand. So this is something that actually they experienced. It wasn't something this kid imagined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that. so that was like one little vignette in, I think I tell a series of stories about when I was first working with the Somali Bantu refugees. I was assigned to work with one specific family, but there was, I, I want to say around seven or eight Somali Bantu families that were all kind of resettled in the same area. And I just started to realize during school breaks and such, the kids had nothing. So I did a art class and just had the kids draw pictures. And yeah, like you mentioned, this boy had drawn a picture of a lion with something in his mouth. And when I asked him what it was, he said, that's the boy. It's the boy who got eaten. And mm. all the other kids kind of stopped what they were doing and came around and they and they all told me the story of when they were living in the refugee camp in Kenya about this little boy who got eaten by a lion. And I just kind of remember being a young, idealistic outsider, just thinking, what do I even do with this information? Like, that is so surreal to me. I'm here in Portland, Oregon, drawing art with these cute kids. You know, it's raining outside. Like, how can this have been their reality? And it wasn't even really that long ago. And I think that kind of introduced me just to the layers upon layers of trauma that refugees mm. experience. So, you know, one thing that's important for me to talk about with some people is that refugees are fundamentally different from immigrants in that they, for whatever reason, are not able to live in their country of origin. As much as yeah. they would love to be there, they cannot live there because of war, famine, whatever it is, it's it's trauma. And so that's been a hallmark of me living and working within refugee communities is everybody's traumatized. Um, and mm. one thing I do explore a little bit in the book is, um, you know, how that trauma can can even rub off on me, you know, after working in these communities for a while, how yes. you can be, you can get, um, what do they call it? Secondary trauma is something that's real and can happen to people. And there's a certain part of my book where I, I do detail a little bit of the crisis of faith <laughs> being traumatized by these stories of all these horrible things led me to, um, and how ultimately it, it led me to a deeper faith in a loving God. But yeah, it's hard to hear these stories and hard to know that it's the reality of so many people throughout the world. When you connect with people the way that you have and lived among them, um, vicarious trauma is just something that it happens and it's just part of being an empathetic person that cares for the people around you. Um, but it's it happens and it's, a, it's one of those risks associated with it. Um, you made me think about how the kids responded to that story, um, not just that it was true, but how annoyed they were that because the boy was eaten, that their moms would not let them play as much as they mm -hmm. used to. And it they were, and for them, they they were almost desensitized to a certain level from the trauma of their experience, that their focus was not on, holy cow, that 
you know, one of my friends got eaten, but, oh, he got eaten and now what's, you know, now it's going to really mess up my day. And I, and I say that in a kind of a cavalier way, mm -hmm. but it seems like that's the way you wrote it. Um, is that the way you experienced it? Am I representing that correctly? Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know all the particulars because, you know, there's, they were kids and, you know, we still have language barriers. And so I don't, I don't know how much that did affect them. And if, it did. They probably didn't have words to tell me. And again, I'm not a counselor or anything. Right. <laughs> so right. I think a, a part of what I was even trying to say in that story is how how little I knew what to do with trauma and to help people who had been traumatized. And I still don't have a super great answer except to be in long term relationship with people, I think, is the is the key for walking through these things. But I mean, I still get shocked by the way people talk to me right now. You know, I'm living um, in Gresham, which is a suburb of Portland, and a lot of my neighbors are from Afghanistan, and they've only been here a few months. And some of the stories they tell me, again, very in a cavalier way, just talking about like, oh yeah, if a man and woman danced together, like she would be killed. And I was like, oh okay, like this is right. really different. This is really intense, and they just giggle about it. And I don't know if that's a coping mechanism or, or what. Um, Again, I don't have all the answers, but this still keeps happening to me is when I have relationships with people who come from the most war-torn places in our world, it it changes me. And like you were just saying, it makes me realize how little I know. I can't imagine growing up in a country where if you danced with a man, you would be killed, right? Like, right. I cannot imagine that. And that that's the reality of women all over. And... What, what am I doing about that, I guess, is where my mind goes. But um, just knowing that it exists, I think, can help with the empathy piece. What I'm curious about, kind of as a transition, is, you know, you mentioned that, uh, uh, I think you just, well, you didn't mention this, but I know that you relocated um, from the Midwest back to the Portland area mm -hmm. um, recently. But I'm curious, um, what uh, what's your engagement now um with the refugee community and how are how are you continuing to uh, to work with people? Are you transitioning or is that something that you're still very involved in? Yeah, it's still something I'm involved in. For three years, my husband and I, we did join um, a mission organization and we moved to Minneapolis for three years because there is a huge population of Somali refugees, about 100,000 um, wow. in Minnesota. And so... I was in heaven. <laughs> we had right. such a great time over there, and we learned so much about how to be in a sustainable, long-term relationship with people who are different from you. Um, and so we we learned that, and then we decided to come back to Portland because this is where our families are. And we moved, like I said, to a suburb um, where... Most of the refugees are getting resettled now due to the lack of affordability in Portland proper. Wow, and yeah, yeah, we I'm committed to um, being in relationship with refugees for as long as I can have it. I just it's a joy for me to be in relationship with people who've taught me so much. I call it, um, you know, I'm obsessed with surprising friendships, and that is what it's like when I'm with my refugee friends. I'm also very um, committed to seeing life be better for them in any way possible here because they face so many challenges trying to 
relocate their lives. Um, if I can help in any way, be it teaching English, helping navigate systems, whatever it may be, um, that's that's just a joy for me to do um, to make their lives a little better. And then I would say thirdly, I do have a passion for um, creating pathways for churches and Christians to get involved in the lives of refugees on a long-term basis because I think everybody will be changed for the better when more people become friends with refugees. So there, there's a term that I've heard you use, and I think it's even part of your blog, a downward mobility. And it's just before we wrap up, I wonder if you would kind of share what what you mean by downward mobility and does that um, play into what we're talking about in terms of serving refugees? Yeah, I think um, there came a point where I was applying to be an overseas missionary, both my husband and I, after we graduated um, from Bible college. And the amount of money we needed to raise to go overseas was like really preposterous to us. And also we realized we would be in positions where we would be working with some of the richest people in those countries. And all of a sudden I thought, you know what, all this work I've been doing with refugees in Portland living in low-income housing like this isn't just a lark this is something I love and that I want to do and so we started to realize what if we just want to not make very much money and instead pursue having space in our lives to be in relationship with people who are really different from us and that's where I think this whole downward mobility thing came from instead of pursuing the best possible jobs and careers and houses, what if instead we set our sights on people who are, you know, on the fringes of American society and decided to camp our tents out there? Um, I think we just knew that we would fundamentally enjoy it and that we would learn so much. And, and that has definitely been true. So even where we relocated in Portland, it's it's not seen as the most desirable neighborhood, but we love it. And we are completely at peace with our decision um, to live there and to take jobs that allow us the space um, for being in a relationship with cultures that are not time driven. <laughs> so a lot of our, you know, refugee friends and neighbors and, and people from, I would say, generational poverty too. um, it's all about having space to be available for when crises happen or when things happen. So we've kind of carved that out for ourselves um, just by not pursuing the normal make as much, get as much, and be busy American sort of upward mobility thing. And it's been so freeing for us, honestly. And I know that you've had a journey uh, in terms of uh, humility along the way starting out with maybe a bit of a, a little holier than now and, <laughs> and moving into uh, a position where you realize that it can't be about how your service reflects on you, but how your service actually accomplishes social justice and brings Christ to the world, to these people. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. And I hope that's true. I mean, I still struggle sometimes with, I don't know, I desire for more people to be in relationship with others who are so different from them. And, you know, I, I really do feel like most of us live in this place of relational poverty 
like where mm. we're only friends with people who look like us or talk like us or act like us or have the same doctrine as, as us or you know make the same amount of money as us and and in the end it just impoverishes us towards being able to empathize with others yeah. So I still think there is that driving me to invite others into n- not even a similar life to me, but we do need to be intentional if we're going to have these surprising friendships in our lives. They they don't just happen, <laughs> you know, by right. accident. And and the the model that we generally like to use is is more one of charity where we can come in every once in a while, do good and then come out. But that in my personal opinion, is not helpful for anyone in the long run and can actually do more damage. So instead, we need you know, long-term engagement where real friendships can develop. And like I said, both parties will be changed. But that, that takes a lot of work. You have to start thinking about where do I live? Where do my kids go to school? Where do I go to church? You know, Where do I shop? Like, Is everybody just like me? Then you, you need to start finding places where you can change some of that. And, you know, if you live in a place like Lake Oswego, I, I still think there's so much value in even reading perspectives from people who are different from you, uh, watching movies, you know, of yeah. or documentaries. Like, there are so many things we can do to broaden our worldview that, that doesn't mean you don't have to live in low-income housing with refugees. But there's so many places you can start. Um, and as long as we keep putting one foot forward, I think... I think Jesus will keep directing us towards these places. You know, I, I really want to affirm what you've you've just said, because it applies not just to refugees, but just other people in other situations. I think uh, about how we as a Christian culture don't necessarily engage with people outside the Christian culture in a way that speaks to them. We and I remember interviewing somebody three years ago who said, that sounds like the way a Christian talks to another Christian when they think they're talking to a non-Christian. Like we, we use our own vernacular mm. and we never get outside of it. And it's so evident that we do not know these people. We don't live with them and we don't love them. And because of that, we will never reach them um, or we'll be very handicapped in our ability to do so. And And so you're... Your topic about serving refugees is really a universal one for us as in Christian culture, realizing that we have to break down the, our own self-erected walls mm-hmm. to, to get connected to people. If we really believe that we are the hands and feet, then we need to not use those hands to build the walls, mm-hmm. but to knock them down and to engage with people in love. Even if, I mean, you're, you're engaging with people who in this book could really care less about your faith and <laughs> when you show them the Jesus movie all they're thinking is well that's interesting I have I would much rather watch you know Spongebob or whatever that <laughs> the mom was watching that one time that made her laugh so much you know um, but anyway I want to affirm you for that I think it's a beautiful book you're a wonderful writer and I not just because of this season but it's certainly in this season I I really want to encourage people to to read the book to enlighten their own worldview, uh, but also the the view of us as a culture and how we respond to refugees and just get educated so that your conversation with folks is is more nuanced and less black and white. And you do such a great job. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. So just the last couple of questions. These have nothing to do with your book, but I'm going to throw them out there anyway. What other art right now is influencing you, whether it's movies you've seen, books you're reading, uh, music you're listening to? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. How honest do you want me to be? I want you to be dead honest. Well, I don't know if I if it's influencing me, but my husband and I just watched Stranger Things on Netflix. Yeah. And I just realized I cannot watch scary things. Like I can't do it. That was way too scary and gave me nightmares last night. Perfect. <laughs> so my, that's on my, my brain. wife. My wife just watched it, but she watched it without me, and she's like, I'm not making that mistake again. Right. Oof. Um, and I haven't seen it. I've seen the first five minutes. So I heard that's really cool. So, folks, if if you like things that are tense and scary, my get, my understanding is it's a fantastic show. Um, but there are certain things I want to acknowledge your fear of the intense things. I watched one and a half episodes of The Walking Dead, and I said oh, it's dear. too much. Oh, no. I can't I can't deal with it. I'm uh yeah. Well anyway, so whether or not it influences you, it's some it did influence <laughs> it you. It did, I had Just, nightmares, so Yeah. So that's it. I think that means my my real life is sort of intense and I don't think I wanna watch intense things. <laughs> yeah. Apparently that's not a good cathartic experience no, for you. No. All right. Well, very good. Well thank you for that. So we'll we'll put a link to that <laughs> to that for folks. Anyway. Well, I, I appreciate your time, and I hope folks have enjoyed this. Uh, I want to encourage people to check out Danielle's book, Dale Mayfield, Assimilator Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. Um, it's really worth your time. It's a beautiful read. Um, check it out. And it's uh, published through Harper One. Frequency.fm is a podcast featuring Christian artists, authors, creatives, and experts. For more music reviews, book reviews, and articles, please visit us at Frequency.fm.